Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Paul Kudenek. Last name is spelled C-U-D-E-N-E-C. And he operates the winteroak.org.uk website with a lot of great information. And on that website, I came across a, a book that I wanted to talk with him about. I think it's timely. Title of the book, if you're watching this on Rockfin or X, is Enemies of the People, the Rothschilds, and their Corrupt Global Empire. This will not be our first show. We've done a couple other shows. The titles of those, covering some of his other books, is uh, Converging Against the Criminocrats, Essays and Talks for the New International Resistance. And that was published September 2023. And then we also did The Great Racket. The ongoing development of the criminal global system. I think that's also timely. It ties into this book. But uh, sometimes this is kind of like people think this is a conspiracy theory or it's not relevant. But the Rothschilds are around. I think Paul is in sometimes in France. I don't know if he's in France right now. But Macron worked for the Rothschilds. There's no question about it. He comes from a banking house. And maybe the reason why he is the prime minister of France. But we can talk more about that. So Paul. Kudinek, welcome back to the show. Hello, William. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting me back. Cool. Are you in France right now or are you back in England? I don't know. Where no, you're... I'm in France. Yeah. yeah you're in France. Still... Okay. So you have first uh, first uh, row seats on what's going there now on there now with Macron. He doesn't seem to be well liked at all. It's <laughs> very strange that he's even the prime minister, much like Trudeau or Biden for that matter. Like it's yeah, kind of odd. Maybe... Go ahead. Mm. Yeah, he's president, president and, he, and he, he got elected president again uh, not so long ago, uh, which is strange because, you know, everyone seems to hate him. But they did this sort of usual sort of manoeuvre where he was, you had to vote Macron to keep out the far right uh, in the form of uh, Marine Le Pen. So uh, all this sort of uh, well-meaning uh, liberals all to the, and, and the left actually queued up to vote for Macron in the final in the final uh, sh- uh, runoff of the election because, you know, the alternative was so much worse. And uh, even the uh, local communists were out on the streets here urging people to go and vote for Macron. Wow. Even though, you know, it's ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Even for his, like, pretty strident capitalist credentials, right, through Rothschilds, the bank de Rothschilds, which yeah. owns, has a secret influence on so many countries around the world, right? Not just yeah, yeah. I mean, France and Britain were one of the uh, the earlier uh, places where they uh, their influence was felt. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's everywhere now, to be honest. Yeah. So for people who don't know the history of the Rothschilds, I think their original name was Bauer. But uh, can you kind of talk about the advent of this family? And you have on your cover of your book the five arrows that represents the original five brothers of my sons. Excuse me, of Meyer and. Uh, Rothschilds, is that right? Yeah, they were. Um, yeah, that wasn't their real. That, the, the Rothschild name was a sort of trading name, really, that they uh, they took from the from the sign above their shop. Really. But they started off in Frankfurt in Germany in the uh, in the Jewish uh, quarter, and uh, the five arrows are the five sons who were sent out across Europe to set up uh, what what turned out to be an empire. Um, so that was one of them went to. Um, one of them went to Britain. To, um, initially, went to Manchester, in fact, which was uh, which was the where the this was in the early part of the nineteenth century, where the industrial revolution was just getting underway in the north of England, 
and although later he moved into the city of London. Another one went to Paris, another one was in Naples, uh, one in Austria, I think, and then I suppose the last one would be the one who stayed in Germany, as far as I can remember. Anyway, but they were all, it was, it was quite unusual at the time because it was, it was obviously sort of one institution, and yet it was, it was a multinational institution, which had, uh, which had, which had apparently separate representatives running apparently separate agendas, cozying up to the establishments in these in these different countries, but in fact coordinating between themselves for the for the overall good of the of the house of the, as they called it, the house of Austria. Right, and I think they got their start clo being close or money changers or money managers for one of the houses, whether it was Saxe Coburg or something. So there was always. Meyer Rothschild was also a very bright, wise guy, but it was always something to do with commercialize, commercializing the state uh, uh, monetary systems or something like that, always from the beginning. Does that sound mm -hmm. right to you? I, I yeah, yeah. I mean, it was um, they were bankers to, uh, to, to uh, sort of the aristocratic classes in uh, in germany but they were what they did was they used the money that there was at one point there was there was there was a lot of tumult there was a sort of wars going on at home and the, they were entrusted with this money by uh wilhelm um it was one of the you know one of the local regional regional kings they, they were entrusted with some money to invest it in london but they invested it and used it for their own purposes they eventually gave it back to him but not before they'd used it as a springboard for their own beginnings of their own wealth so they've always been very, uh, very astute and clever in the way that they that they invest money and use money. Right. And so then they also kind of were in a kind of international network of communication between the offspring, too. Right. So that was kind of one of the things that they had to their advantage is uh, communications. Meyer Amschel Rothschild, I think, was mid 18th century. So this house goes back 250 years, or over 250 years, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they were, um, yeah, it's over 200. Well, yeah, they started becoming uh, more successful in, uh, well, in Britain, for example. It was the beginning, the beginning of the uh, of the 19th century, during the Napoleonic Wars, in fact. Yeah, and communication was their uh, first, uh, their first big trump card. They prided on themselves on having their own, uh, their own network. Intelligence. I mean, his intelligence network, and um, I would say that the today's intelligence networks of various countries are, in fact, you know, a continuation of the the original Rothschild outfits. But um, and they had their own ships that that, that didn't take any uh, didn't take any paying customers or anything, no outsiders. So they had their own communications network, which was very much trusted by a lot of the royal families in Europe. But of course, this this gave them two advantages. Um, not only did they have their own communications and means of communicating secretly, but they also were privy to the communications of the people who entrusted them with their communications. They could read them. You know, they were they were they were au fait with everything that was going on. And the, the most famous example of their um, intelligence gathering and the way they cleverly used it was was during the uh, the Battle of Water uh, the Battle of Waterloo, which was the final defeat of, uh, of Napoleon, and. Uh, they um, everybody knew that they had they had this this network of, uh, of spies or you know in, informers and communications. So um, and they often got the news before the actual governments got the news before the British government got the news. 
And uh, one day, this uh, the the Rothschilds uh, in London walked into the stock exchange and uh, started selling all his uh, stocks in the in the in the British state. And so people said, "Oh, he knows something." We lost. We lost the Battle of Waterloo because you know they didn't know it wasn't on twenty-four hour news or anything. It took time for news to physically cross the channel, and so they all st- everybody started selling off all their uh, all their investments in the British government and so on. And um, but it wasn't true. And uh, he, he, quick, he bought them up. Uh, Rothschild bought them up, and uh, May, and when, you know by the time that people found out that, and in fact, Britain had won. It was too late, and he, did, you know, and that was that was apparently was the way that he um, start kick started his, his 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 British financial empire. Oh, and this is it's just just to make this clear. This, I've got this information from reading a very mainstream biography of the of, uh, or a story of the of the Rothschilds by uh, Neil Ferguson, who's a sort of quite right wing conservative, well, establishment, a sort of establishment historian in Britain. So. Uh, you know, it's not something I've just made up or found on the internet on some strange site. Right. You mentioned Carol Quigley a lot in this book as well, so he's pretty uh, well known and really kind of was an establishment, at least scholar. Worked at Georgetown and trained a lot of the yeah uh, national security types. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, so this is known. These are known facts. These aren't like made up conspiratorial facts, right? No, no. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Quigley, yeah, Quigley is interesting because he, although he was he was very much an insider, and because of that, perhaps he sort of hedges a bit. He doesn't name, he doesn't always name the Rothschilds. He talks about certain type of capitalists, financial capitalists, and so on. But you know, when you when you when you when you read when you read through everything he's written about it, you know, which is he writes at some length, and then you compare it with other sources, you can see that that's where he's getting at, but he's sort of slightly backing off from spe- from spelling it out at times. And it, it's, uh, it was only really through reading other people who were uh, writing around what he wrote, notably Doherty and McGregor, uh, Jared, Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor, two Scottish historians who wrote a couple of excellent books on the First World War and the whole uh, Anglo-American establishment, the Milner group and you know that around Cecil Rhodes and all that, that those sort of early circles there that were, were, were instrumental in uh, shaping the direction of the British Empire and then and later the Commonwealth in fact and in which Rothschild Lord Rothschild at the time was a was a was a, a leading figure although one who preferred to remain more in the background than than the others but you know it's, it's, it's for reading a, a number of these books that it I, st- was, I started to notice how often the Rothschild name came up. I wasn't looking for that. I was, you know, it was, it's not as if I sort of started off with the with the with the thesis that the Rothschilds must be behind everything. I it just you know, just just these, it, it just kept adding up again and again and again. These links, links, more and more links behind every every little maneuver. And the, the First World War, in fact, is the most shocking thing of all to me. That. You know, well, I think we talked about that previously, maybe. So um, we don't need to get into that again. But. Right, but they're in there, and you write in your book they had all kinds of front companies, a very tangled liberal, you know, you know, Byzantine structure. So you couldn't even see. So there's these front groups you wouldn't even know offhand if they were Rothschild. So you know, they yeah. bought, and that was kind of the way they kept secret. They were secretive and kept their wealth secretive, and their their kind of 
trades and maneuvers hidden from yeah. the public. Yeah, especially at a certain point, they, they decided, I think, they obviously decided that they had to become more secretive because they were becoming so unpopular. You know, there were um, revolts in, um, in France. There were, you know, people were strikers and revolutionaries were targeting the, uh, targeting the Rothschilds' uh, chateaus and business concerns. And uh, there was a, as I start, I start off the, uh, the book actually, talking about a, uh, there was a bomb had been sent uh, to the Rothschilds by, uh, by anarchists. In, um, in in Paris, in France, in 1895, I think it was, and uh, the, the Times of London reported saying, "Well, it's you know the Rothschilds are an obvious target for for, for, for anarchists." Um, so I think at that sort of time they must have realised, "Well, hang on, you know we're, we're an obvious target. Everybody seems to know what we're doing and who we are, so we've got to be more careful about this. We've got to step back and uh, you know." And, then, and from that beginning, especially if they had already got in mind the uh, the manoeuvres involving the uh, First World War, obviously it would be pretty dangerous for them if it was if it was obvious to large numbers of people that they were in some way involved in uh, in prearranging the uh, the deaths of millions of young men. So right. yeah, and they were infamous for either encouraging war or financing wars all over the world. And there's actually kind of a weird strain of anti-Semitism where there's no Jewish people in Japan, but it all stems back to the financing of the of the japanese russia War of, I think, 1905, where I think one of the Rothschild or the Schiffs or something associated with the Rothschilds financed the Japanese uh, war at that time. It's really, really something else. Like it, and it shows their global reach, and that's just one example of multitudes of examples of their involvement in wars, right? There are, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, even in Latin America, they were funding, um, I think it was, yeah, they were funding Brazil in its war against Argentina at some point. And, you know, it was everywhere. I mean, they, they, they said themselves that um, if, you know, it was one of their sort of family mottos that uh, if you've got money, then war can help you make more money. You know, it was, um, they're quite ruthless about it. I mean, you know, just... You couldn't really even say that they've got a political position. I mean, you, they, they're just—it's it's purely self-interest. Everything they, they, they did was just, you know, just seen through that very narrow lens of uh, what can we make out of it. And they made money multiple ways out of the, these wars. Uh, so, I mean, they were involved in arm, arms firms, so they were selling the weapons and the and the raw materials used in the war, and uh, and also, of course, they were involved in loans to governments. To pay for these wars, you know, it's, right? It's, so, and it's incredible because it's all over the world. You've got hmm. the Boer War; they're interested in, hmm. but they have a financial interest in certain lands and diamonds and interest down there. So, the war facilitates hmm. their capitalist greed. You've got Franco-Prussian War; that's 1870, Crimean yeah. War. I mean, it's just like so many of these things they're involved in financing. And these are yeah. huge numbers. Like, and I think Myers said, like, the best government is a government that's unstable and in need, right? Because th that's when these kind of predators would come in and yeah. get loans and make exorbitant amounts of money, tens of millions of pounds, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, yeah, the more the you know the, the more the debts pile up, the more they've got the uh, they've got their hands on the. Um, on that particular state, you know, as we've, as we, as we know now, I mean, when you think about the, uh, 
everything that happened in Greece a few years back, you know, and the, even the, even when they even they uh, elected a supposedly left wing government, they were unable to get out from under the the grip of the IMF, which is um, very much part of the uh, of the general criminocracy, <laughs> as I call it. Right, right, and it goes back to Basel. What is it? The Bank of International mm -hmm. Settle Settlements or whatever. Here's yeah. the direct quote of Meyer. It's uh, he told his sons, "It is better to deal with a government in difficulties." than with one that has luck on its side. So, like, find people who need money, and there you go. you got a deal. Yeah. It's crazy. So then um, what they were doing, too, they were involved in all kinds of infrastructural advancements all over the world as well, right? So they were making money not just on war, but on these huge railway projects pretty much yeah. everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, pretty much everywhere. I mean, not every single railway line, but, you know, they had an immense, immense scope. Um, and, of course, the, the railways also ended up being used in the war, you know, to, they, as well as shifting around the place, the raw materials and products that they were often involved in selling and um, extracting and manufacturing and so on. Also, it, it moved troops to the borders, and it was it's all one part, one one giant infrastructure development. I mean, it's development, which is um, which is really I, I see development as being a way of them of people like them. Them, it's principally them. I can I can now say, having having looked into it historically, it's principally the Rothschilds that have constructed this, manufactured this so-called need for development and infrastructure, and for loans. From from banks like theirs, from, to governments to enable you know modernization and, and progress and great leaps forward and uh, electrification schemes. I mean they had a pretty much a monopoly on uh, the world's copper, and so electrification was going to be good news for them. And uh, and this is why we still see the word development is so prominent now. I mean what we're facing now the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. It's it's all it's all the same project. It's all the same scam, right? No, it's incredible. So all that money is you know put one direction, probably benefiting these guys like the you know they say the new world order is like the old world order, just re remarketed to the people or whatever. So these guys are all part of this old world order. And this like you even mentioned the famous picture of Evelyn de Rothschild with now King Charles the Third, right? And mm. like King Charles III is in a passive position. It's really something else. Like the people who haven't seen that picture, check it out. Yeah, yeah. It's, yes, he's, he's um, Rothschild is uh, prodding him in the chest, isn't he? Telling him, uh, yeah. telling him what he's going to do. Yeah, he's bigger than bigger than Prince uh, King Charles now. King Charles III now. So it's uh, and that's kind of what they successfully did. So not only did the brothers branch out, but they ingratiated themselves to power successfully mm. they're almost like the pre robert maxwell Ghislaine maxwell types so they can you talk maybe their connection to macron churchill disraeli some of these other really well-known political figures yeah well disraeli was very close to them i mean he was he was openly friends with them um and uh you know and he went to the when britain uh he went to them for funding for the Suez Canal, which was obviously an important part of the British Empire and the and the routes to the uh, to India in particular. 
but uh, you know he, the loan was uh, considered to be uh, at the time by some contemporaries to be a ridiculously expensive massive rate of interest and so on and, um churchill yeah churchill's father was was you know so not winston but randolph churchill was the first one who was very closely involved with the with the rothschilds and when he died he owed them a large amount of money well there are a number a number of different techniques that they they've obviously been using one of which is to to fund extravagant lifestyles the um prince regent as he was called who who later became king of england george yeah, George. He was um, he had a, an extravagant lifestyle. His, he was the a son of um, Queen Victoria, and uh, he was he was he was befriended by by the Rothschilds, by Natty Rothschilds. You know, they that was their way in. You know, and then because he because he enjoyed um, enjoyed a sort of debauched life with uh, prostitutes in uh, Paris brothels and the rest of it, and he and, and was spending more than his. Uh, that his mother, Queen Victoria, was prepared to uh, to give him as an allowance. They were happy, happy to fund him large amounts of money, and uh, you know. But of course, he became their great chum. And um, Queen Elizabeth II, who you know, who died a few years back, she was also said to be very close to the Rothschilds, and as as his child. He just broke up there. Let's let's stop, Cam. Let's see if we can get a better. Paul, we just broke up there. Maybe you can turn off your camera. Oh, okay. Let's try that. Never know if I want. There we go. So, so he, she was close. So Queen Elizabeth II was close to the Rothschild family as well. So that connection is all still there. The Rothschilds around, and Americans know. That Evelyn de Rothschild, you had his kind of finger on King Charles's chest back when he was Prince Charles. His latest wife, he's passed away, I think, within the last couple of years, but it's uh, Lynn Forrester de Rothschild. She's really something else. And I was talking to Paul pre show. She is in the kind of, um, what is it, Pizzagate uh, Instagram things of James Alephantis. So she's connected to Media Matters, which is being sued by Elon Musk. So these Rothschilds are still around. She's a remarkable person. So she married into the Rothschild uh, fam uh, clan, I should say. And uh, But she's connected to a lot of kind of uh, important cultural figures here. So people who think that the Rothschilds are some kind of uh, non-influential group. And also they're, they have a stake in the American Federal Reserve too, right, right Paul? Um, I believe so. Oh, yeah. yeah, I believe so. I think that they're one of them, one of the important groups. But like, yeah, so they've always uh, been close to the royalty. I think that that's always been our European royalty is really it. But uh, yeah, so they they also privatized all that power. You know, they were they wanted to issue the bonds too, right, to these governments. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they became the trusted financiers of, uh, of 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 many states. You know, they were they were they were interested. They were also involved in gold, which was obviously partly through South Africa, where the, the gold fields they were involved in there. But they they ended up um, having a virtual monopoly of the, of the of the world's gold supplies, and were very keen on uh, advancing the gold standard as a uh, 
as a model, financial model, for obvious reasons, because they 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 were producing the gold, and uh, and after, in fact the the price of gold at one point was set, um, you know, when it, I don't know if it was every day or every week, I can't remember now, but anyway, it was set officially set at their headquarters in London, not oh, at wow. the uh, yeah, not at the Bank of England or wherever, but at uh, New Court, the, the, the Rothschild offices. So it's. It's not a fantasy story to suggest that they were they were they were really at the center of power in many different ways. Right, it's really something else. And so, yeah, they instigated the fake bank banking crisis of 1907, and the solution was the American Federal Reserve. So all those guys were there at uh, Jekyll Island here in the states. It's really something else. But you write and quote Joseph Mercola that I mean we know that these huge slugs of corporate entities are run by very small groups, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, right? So people don't even know who the owners are behind that. But mm. Joseph Mercola, if I can quote this, is from your book. While it would take time to sift through all of Vanguard's funds and to identify individual shareholders and therefore owners of Vanguard, a quick look-see suggests Rothschild Investment Corps and the Edmund D. Rothschild Holding are two such stakeholders. So there they are. They're, I mean, and this interlocking network of... Uh, shareholders is is all throughout the united states it's almost like every major fortune 500 company has vanguard or blackrock with the ownership of secret it's crazy yeah yeah every time you look up anything any you know it's, it's always the same isn't it so yeah it's really a megacore it's actually a strange megacore something that's never happened in human american history or human history where these huge blocks are owned by corporations whose real owners aren't known to the public it's really something else yeah and then all these um all these uh so-called public institutions you know which there are endless varieties uh, all have partners so-called partners which are which are from these same which these same um from these same corporate blocks you know the united nations and and all, all, all the rest of them you go through and the commonwealth and uh, prince uh, king charles's charities and you know everything i've looked at it's, and, and bricks as well. And, and you come out, and it's the, they're all they're all it's the same names, the same foundations, and uh, and and you know, and the World Bank and, and all the rest of it. It's, right, it's incredible. It, it's, it's really, it's quite staggering. It is actually really all the same thing. The the public private partnership is one single global entity that that, that, that they don't want us to know about. They don't right. want to, you know, and it is also, of course, it's taboo to suggest as much. Not right. only, you know, not only are you a conspiracy theorist and a, and an extremist, but because because the Rothschilds are involved and they're um, supposedly Jewish, I don't for a moment suppose that their faith is genuine because you wouldn't behave in, in in that sort of way if you genuinely um, genuinely subscribe to the Jewish faith or any other traditional faith, but, you know, their, their, their background is a Jewish one. So if you mention them, even without, you know, without referring to the fact that they're Jewish, you immediately become anti-Semitic, an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist, you know, and that's a hate crime and so on. So, but, you know, that's obviously all part of the defense structures that they've yes. built in. No question. No question about it. I think that they're really um, not practicing Jews. Like, they marry with Gentiles. Like, I think Evelyn de Rothschild's three wives were all not from the family. That's not the way it was before, because when they no. were younger, it was all a lot of lot of marrying cousins and things like that, which was much more common 
in Judaism back then than it is now, I think. Just yeah. it's more, much more persecution and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see that looking back, they might, you can see why they might have felt the need to stick together, given the amounts of actual, you know, real anti-Semitism that there would have been against them when they started out. You know, you can't, you know, it, it was a very different atmosphere, wasn't it, in the 19th yeah, century? Yeah, yeah. But uh, now to, uh, to, to be hiding behind that, I mean, they're doing such a disservice to ev all other Jewish people in the world because, you know, they're, 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 by using them as a sort of a human shield, effectively, rhetorical human shield, they're sort of uh, laying them open to, to, to hostility from people who shouldn't be feeling hostile towards Jewish people. They should be feeling hostile specifically towards the Rothschilds and their associates. Right. They're just like full-on uh, cold-blooded capitalists all over the place. Yes. And they're involved in all this new stuff. DEI goes through like Vanguard and BlackRock. So they're promoters of a lot of different cultural changes using their kind of financial largesse and also this uh, green, fake green conservative conservation. I think you said in one of your chapters about the global environment facility is like hmm. this whole new transhumanist fake green salvation they're behind some of that too right yeah yeah they are uh yes and um an impact investment they're heavily involved with that as well which is a which is a pet subject of mine it's just a sort of ultimate privatization it's um it's a privatization of um services that uh, states have traditionally provided to the population such as education and health and so on and uh the commodification of uh of, of people to be sources of uh investment and then profit for for uh, speculators for financial capitalists so yeah and they're heavily involved in that of course of course they are right so they're still around and i think that one of the hilton family here the uh hotelier family married a rothschild if i remember correctly she married oh one of the rothschilds i forgot who it was but yeah so i mean they're still around there's no question about it. They're still kind of around in, in oh, yeah. the public. I think it was James Rothschild. He's the son of Amschel Rothschild, so it's James Rothschild before 1985. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, they're definitely still around. I mean, you know, you, and they're quite proud of still being around. You know, if you actually look into their into their sites, you know, they're not. It's only it's only this. They've just tried to create this impression this is the sort of story that is put around was that oh no they used to be they used to be very powerful and uh, right. you know the end of, end of the 19th century but since then now they're just a little they're just a little private bank you know they're not because uh, you know because it's they're not using their own name they're not you know you, you can't see that they're behind it even if you research it like you were saying with blackrock and vanguard and so on there's there's no way that people can yeah. people on the outside can see who's actually behind it Intentionally, right? It's the veil of secrecy. It's all intentional. They do not want to, be, and they do not want the public to know how big the megacorp is because it's enormous. It's not in the billions. It's in the trillions. It's off the charts. Yeah, it's uncharitable wealth to a small group of people, while the rest of of humanity basically becomes a rent slave. Like it's an incredible dystopian. Thing. And he was, you know, they were happy about it. The Rothschild family has that kind of, uh, it seemed like reading through your book, they have that kind of, 
you know, let them eat cake and F the poor attitude, even for their own country, even for their fellow men of these, like some of the Jews that were being persecuted in Russia, they're like, ah, who cares? I'm not housing these people, you know, like, I don't care. Right. No, yeah, yeah, they actively set up uh, committees to get them sent on somewhere else in the world so that they wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a cluttering Father, up. Right? Yeah, like a true elite, elitist. So they were an elite among an elite and actually kind of saw themselves even kind of on a kind of an aristocratic par with maybe some of the uh, royal families of Europe. Like they saw themselves in that in that group with, with fantastic wealth, right? So they were mm. spending money on Rothschild buildings. I think even one of the Rothschild buildings was featured at least externally in uh, Eyes Wide Shut. I think it was one of the Rothschild mansions in England. Yes. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I think yeah. I saw. <clears throat> I don't know if the interior was, but the exterior for sure. So I think that the, you know they're pointing at these elite, secret elite powers and and their sensibilities and uh, yeah, it's really something else. It is. It's, it's, it's shocking, actually. It's shocking. It's shocking. Uh, it's allowed. Yeah. Yeah, that they've got away with it. And, you know. Yeah, you have a quote in there. This is from Heinrich, Heinrich Heine. He says, Money is the god of our time, and Rothschild is his prophet. So that was back in the early 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it remains true today. It really does. I mean, it's still around. I think that people are just doing stuff for pro pure profit. The cold-blooded, cold-blooded heart of kind of like the financial empire is still out there. You know, like it, what can we? How can we make the most money the fastest? However, whatever. And then one of the interesting things that you point out in your book is they weren't af afraid of kind of some of the dirtier aspects of the corporate environment where you know the company is going to go bankrupt. So you actually float money, go through the bankruptcy. So the cyclical thing of like getting money, going bankrupt, and then pumping and dumping these these corporations, they weren't averse to that either. So they were all involved in all kinds of financial enterprises, right? Yeah, yeah, and really sort of uh, really sort of mastered the uh, you know ways of taking over com companies without without it being obvious from the outside you know that the, the old the, the previous owner remains in the position as the uh, as the, apparently the, the president or whatever of the of the company but on the board you know there's the man who actually represents the the people with the with the money who can actually veto everything that they do and is is controlling it but there's no way there's no way you could from the outside you could see that that was being controlled Right. And they destroyed uh, political rivals. So anybody who kind of they saw as a somebody who would a, a politician who would subvert their power, they would try to get rid of them. You mentioned this guy Gambetta from France, like, yeah, you know, they just got he was gone in a month or something like I think he was complaining about something. He's like, oh, yeah, he's gone. Yeah, he was threatening to uh, nationalize the uh, the railways. Uh, which you know, which they didn't want. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, and they actually, they actually said it. You know, we got to get rid of him. You know, it, it's, it's, it's been recorded that they said, "Well, you, you know, we have to get rid of him," and they did. You know, so. And that's part of the thing of the corrupting of the political life. So when you have these people with that much money, they're inevitably going to corrupt political systems wherever they're at. In my opinion, yeah. So I think, I think that's. 
a lot while well, where we're at it kind of explains maybe some of the political leaders here in the states is that they they know certain things they can't that can never be remedied or their political yeah. career is over yeah i mean either they're um yeah either they've been they just work for them all along you know they've been there's a lot of that sort of grooming you know all these different young leaders yeah. schemes and there's yeah. dozens of those schemes or they've got or and or you know it's the epstein type thing you know they've got they've got some sort of blackmail trump card that they can that they can hold against them you know one way or the other they make sure that they they own them i mean yeah no, they want to thumb on anybody in any any position of power, especially that's part of the the wealth and the control is like even people in media, alternate media, regular media, they want a finger on, on the media, politicians, other people in the finance world. It's really something else. And that's how they maintain control and power. Yeah, and I think it wasn't it was never so obvious as uh, at the beginning of the COVID thing, wasn't it? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. when it's just just this sort of chorus of identical propaganda spouting from every media source on the planet. You know? Yeah, it's oh, pretty much the same same wording. You know, so and then and then and then again, the fact that corporations and governments and global institutions were all saying exactly the same thing, and supposed opposition groups you know left-wingers and anarchists all coming out with exactly the same script you know and I, I mean that is what pushed me down this path I wouldn't I wouldn't have started looking for any of that if I hadn't been just appalled by uh, what we saw unfolding um, you know in 2020 2021 yeah and go probably go look at the uh owners of Pfizer BioNTech and you probably find Vanguard Right there in the middle, making money from no, all those, all the largest that came out of the, the governments of, of nations around the world to pay for these, these uh, shots. It's really something else. With huge transfers of wealth from the public fisc to, uh, to the corporations to these individuals. Like it's nothing's ever seen in the in the billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. Right. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. I mean, they were they were the Rothschilds, and you know, I documented it. That they were involved in the uh, in the, the Margaret Thatcher years in Britain. Were that were you know they was it was it was privatization, it was right. privatization of everything, and uh, which was very unpopular at the time, um, despite the fact that she'd been voted in, like you know, but it was it was it was massively unpopular. And uh, but they were they were involved in that. It's you know it's 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 there on the public record. Privatized right into Rothschild hands, huh? Is that really kind of yeah, well, they make money out of that. You know, they, they were sort of, they, they had the contract to do the privatization. So they were making money out of the of the fact of the private, you know, the, the act of privatizing, as well as quite possibly uh, picking up the picking up the pieces that any profitable pieces that were that might have interested in them. Yeah. Interesting. So, Paul, where can people get Enemies of People? It's an open source or it's an openly available book, right? Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a free PDF from the um, from winteroak.org.uk, which is the the Winteroak site. Uh, there's the books section there, and um, you know, along with various other books, it can be downloaded as a free PDF. Um, it's also included within uh, the Great Racket. In fact, you know, I I put it in there, and that that's a that's a, a book with of, of, of a number of essays. 
which can also be bought as a, a physical copy. So that would be the way if you if people wanted a physical copy of the uh, the Rothschilds piece, that would be, that would be the way to get that. But um, and you put out a new book. I don't I don't think I see this. Our quest for freedom is uh, just came out. Yeah, it just came out a few right? days ago. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations, awesome. Egalitarian anti-modernism. W. D. Yeah. James bought, and I see that's a uh, Blake um, picture there on the top. What's that about? That's a contributor to the Winter Oaks guy, uh, w, w. D. James. Um, his, his first essay. He wrote a number of essays on the site, which we've put together into a into a, another PDF booklet. And he I talks see. about William Blake, amongst other. He's going into the ideas behind. Um, you know, the philosophical ideas behind the sort of uh, sort of position I'm setting out. I see. So there's a lot of books. Maybe I missed a lot of these books, but you put up a lot of different things uh, on here. So there's a lot of good material here. People can check out a lot of food for thought at winteroak.org.uk. And if people have any additional questions or want to follow up, is this the place to find you? Is at your website? Yeah. Yeah. There's a... There's an email address on there somewhere. <laughs> somewhere gotcha. Right, so, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah, you're putting out a lot of material. There's a lot of new stuff. So it looks like there's other writers here as well. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I've, um, you know, it started off, it was more or less me, but uh, gradually like-minded people have, um, you know, come forward and offered some really good good quality material. In fact, yeah, awesome. Much like this book, you know, so people can check this book out. Uh, title again is Enemies of the People, the Rothschilds and their Corrupt Global Empire. It was published originally 2022. You can find it on the website, which I'll put a link to winteroak, winter excuse me, dot org dot uk. And the author again is Paul Kudenek, C U D E N E C. Thanks so much for your time, Paul. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you, William. Thanks. All right, take care. Take care. Stay there. Stay there.